Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of the Holding the Ladder in Sport and Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Tim Rice. This week's guest is Dr. Thomas Stallworth. Dr. Stallworth is the head strength and conditioning coach with the Atlanta Falcons in the National Football League. He came to the Falcons after three seasons with the New York Giants, and he has a wealth of experience at the collegiate level as a strength and conditioning coach at schools across the United States. He is a former national champion as a player at the University of Tennessee on the football team and was also part of two SEC conference championships and played in five bowl games during his career. He has a lot of education and experience, and I think you all are going to gain a lot from Dr. Stallworth during the next few minutes. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of the Holding the Ladder in Sport and Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Tim Rice, and with me today is Dr. Thomas Stallworth, the head strength and conditioning coach of the Atlanta Falcons in the National Football League, and uh, a student that I chaired on his dissertation at the University of Arizona Global Campus. So Dr. Stallworth, welcome to the podcast. Looking forward to uh, learning more about you. Obviously, I've worked with you very closely on your dissertation, but I'm looking forward to learning more about your, your past and uh, how you climbed up the, the ladder to get to where you are. So uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Dr. Rice. I'm, I'm honored and I'm privileged to be a guest on this. I'm looking forward to spending time with you again as well. Perfect. Yeah. And now it's not about me coming after you about, you know, your <laughs> dissertation. So it's a little bit different. So I'm looking forward to, uh, to talking with you. So tell us, tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, Thomas. Yes, I am currently married uh, with two kids. My wife and I will be celebrating our 15th anniversary next week, actually. My daughter, India, just celebrated her 16th birthday in April. And then we have a son who Thomas the third. He's he'll be 15 in October. But you know that's my my immediate family. I am the son of a military man and a sibling to a brother and a sister who are in law enforcement. My sister is a judge in Fulton County, Georgia, and my brother is a chief of a jail in uh, Fort Long Beach, Florida. But he also served in the Air Force before getting into law enforcement. So, you know, I come from an extremely organized and disciplined family, and but all of our family members played sports growing up. So I was naturally introduced to sports at a young age, but the, the teaching points from home to sports, you see how everything always carries over and is intertwined. Yeah, and... You know, you, you talked about, and again, your current position is uh, as head strength and conditioning coach for the Atlanta Falcons. Um, tell us a little bit about kind of what brought you to Atlanta and what you did before that. So this is actually job number nine for me. After I graduated from the University of Tennessee playing football, I stayed there and was a graduate assistant there as well for two years. And from there, my first, my first, full-time position was at South Carolina State University in Orangeburg, South Carolina. Um, a great experience for me because going from the SEC and working with football only to now going to a historically black college that didn't have the resources, but now also having to work with all sports 
gave me a chance to meet other players, meet other coaches, see the dynamics of working with different athletes, male, female, you know, and just so many different personalities. And so from there, I was there for about four and a half, five years. From there, I went to another historically black college, uh, Grambling State University in Louisiana. And again, I was the head strength coach there, got a chance to work with a lot of different sports, a lot of different athletes. And, you know, the one thing that I took from both in both universities and those both experiences is that is how much athletes really want to be coached. You know, you take it for granted that when this field as strength conditioning was originally created, it was about football or bodybuilding or whatever. But as athletes continue to grow and matriculate through their levels, once they get to college, they still want to do what is necessary in order to be successful. And for some of them, even though they don't enjoy the training while you're in the midst of it, they understand that it's a necessary evil. And so they were very receptive at both of those universities. And I mean, all the sports, women's tennis, women's bowling, men and women, men's track and field, you name it, I had a chance to work with. And so it was a, it was a fulfilling experience and opportunity for me at both of those universities. From there, I went to Mississippi State in Starkville, Mississippi as an assistant when associate head strength coach. Uh, from there, I actually took a somewhat of a demotion for the sake of my wife and her family. I uh, left there and went to North Carolina State because my wife is from Bennettsville, South Carolina, and that's about an hour and a half straight up Highway 1 to Raleigh, North Carolina. But her sister has MS. And, you know, for so long when you're a coach, you're always chasing your dreams and you have great spouses who want to support you and do, you know, do everything possible for you to have a, the best opportunity possible. I felt it was a chance to give back to her so that she could be there and help her sister, help her mother, help her father. Because at the end of the day, sports is a game. It's something that we love to do, but all when we come in the world, we have family. When we leave this world, all we have is family. And so you can get a job anywhere but to be able to give that to my wife and her family was kind of a big deal for me. And so, you know, it was a great opportunity living there, living in Raleigh, which is the state capital of North Carolina. Did not know that until I got there. So it was a learning experience. Uh, after my time at North Carolina State, I was able to go to Texas Tech as an associate director to start climbing back up the ranks of, with the goals of being a head strength coach at a power five school. And so I was at Texas Tech literally for two months, three months, and I got a call for a head opportunity at Fresno State. So a kid from Stone Mountain, Latonia, Georgia, is now going to California, never have been to the West Coast, sight unseen, besides my interview, but it was an opportunity. And so, you know, you can't turn, you can't be picky about these opportunities because in college football, there's only 131 of them. And so when you get them, you take advantage of them. And so after three months in, Te in Lubbock, Texas, we moved to Fresno, California. And unfortunately, that stay was just as short because we had a bad season. And with the nature of the business, we would let go. Uh, didn't win enough games. And so the new head football coach came in, wanted his own head strength coach. And rightfully so, knowing and understanding the business, had to move on. From there, we moved 
back south, we were, I was fortunate to uh, get a head position at West Kentucky University, the Hilltoppers, uh, in Bowling Green, Kentucky. It's about an hour north of Nashville. And so I was there for about a year and literally three months again. <laughs> and then I get a call out of the blue from a gentleman that I end up working with, but we had known each other for several years. Coach, but he's a doctor also, Dr. Aaron Wellman. He's now the head strength coach and an associate AD of athletic performance at Indiana University. But he was the head strength coach at the Giants. He called me and asked me if I'd be interested in working in the NFL. And after all of the moves within those last two years, like I said, we went from North Carolina to Texas for three months, from Texas to Fresno for nine months, and now to West Kentucky. You're talking four moves within two years. My children were starting to get older, and they needed some stability. But my wife also said that, you know, you don't, everybody doesn't get a chance to coach in the NFL. And so when you get an opportunity like this, we have resilient kids. They're like military kids. They understand what it is to have to pack up and move and meet people and just create new friends, but they've always got sports to fall back on. So we went for that opportunity. And so we were with the New York football giants for three seasons. And lo and behold, this past off season, there was a coaching change here with the Atlanta Falcons. And I had a great relationship with coach, the head coach in New York, Joe Judge. And he knew my aspirations of being a head strength coach in the NFL. And lo and behold, he made a call to the new head coach here, Arthur Smith, and put in a great recommendation for me. And, you know, the way the NFL works, Arthur called some players, called some other coaches about me, said he'd heard some good things about me and was interested in interviewing me. And so I'll never forget it. I get a text message on a Monday about 1 o'clock, says he'd like to interview, do a Zoom interview about 4.30 on on you know that same Monday, I say no problem. I, I, of course, I'll be available. And so we sit down, we interview, and we just talk. Nothing formal, just back and forth. Conversations about football, conversation about his background, my background, my experience with the Giants and where I've been, his experiences with the Tennessee Titans because he had been there through three or four different coaches, had been there with the Washington Redskins. He played at North Carolina, uh, Chapel Hill, and so we were just talking. And so my last question to him was, Coach, how soon do you think you'd make this decision? He said, I should be able to let you know something within the next 24 hours. Well, 9.30 the next morning, he gives me a call and offers me the job. And so I remember just sitting on the edge of my bed and looking at my wife, thinking to myself, I get to coach my childhood dream team. And I still get emotional about it because I remember growing up, going to these games with my father and my, my brother, and now I'm here. So, yeah. yeah. Wow. And um, obviously, uh, being from the area, I know your, your, your sister, you said, is, is a judge there in the Atlanta area in Fulton County. And, of course, you growing up in Stone Mountain, Georgia, not too, too far from there. And being military, too. You know, as you know, I'm a military kid as well. Yeah. And, and, and so when you think about the uh, – how did – growing up in the military – prepare you for moving so much? Well, fortunately for me, we were settled. Um, we didn't, my father was not active duty. He was reserved. But, you know, we, at, during the time that we were, that I was growing up, 
he had served in Vietnam, which was before I was born, but he did have to serve in Desert Storm. So, you know, you take it back to the late 80s, early 90s. He was deployed to that. And there was a point that my mom, I lost my mom to depression when I was 10 years old. And so they had to make a decision if my grandparents, well, his parents were going to come from Tuskegee, Alabama to help raise me over here or if I was going to move back over there for them. And so both of my grandparents, you know, unselfishly said that it was best to keep me in my normal routine and my normal environment and move to Stone Mountain to help raise me there. Wow. Yeah, I know. And, and I, I ask that question of anyone that's been, uh, that's uh, a, a child of a military person, because I know, and I, we didn't move a ton, but we moved a some, and it's been, I've moved a lot as well, as you know, and being a, um, a military brat, an army brat, you know, you, you kind of, uh, you get used to uh, up and going, and I'll never forget being a kid and moving from Fort Knox to Fort Rucker and uh, get, being in this and seeing this really big moving truck outside and going, what's that? And my mom saying, oh, well, we're leaving. I'm like, oh, okay. Um, well, okay. So one thing that you've been very humble about is you're a national champion. Yeah. And, uh, you know, um, so how did you get your start in sports? I mean, what, what got you started? What got you excited about playing football or other sports that you, uh, played growing up so growing up when i was a little kid we were always playing the neighborhood you know that was you know you joke about society now but there was a time when you know it was nothing for one neighborhood of kids to get together and go play another neighborhood of kids and basketball baseball football you know and you just you would get on your bike or ride or walk or whatever just to go play other neighborhoods and even if you couldn't play other neighborhoods you know, you could play, play, you would find a way to make it work with your friends in your neighborhood. And so as I'm playing with those friends, they would start telling me about the little league that they were playing in. And so like, what is little, what is organized sports? And so, you know, you go out there and now you see that, you know, that there's a coach, there's structure, there's people actually teaching you what to do instead of, you know, you just pick a different position every day out in the street. And so I grew up, playing Little League Baseball. And so Little League Baseball, I was a catcher, played um, a little infield, but primarily a catcher and every now and then pitch. And then when I got to playing football, funny enough, I was I was a chubby kid growing up. So I was actually an offensive lineman, um, third, fourth, fifth grade. And, you know, like most people, they hit a growth spurt. So about eighth grade, I hit a growth spurt and going into ninth grade year, I actually started playing tight end and quarterback. I don't know how that happened, but yeah. And so, you know, just started playing with a bunch of kids and then grew up from, you know, and it got introduced to organized sports. But besides little league football, there was the influence of my father because he was an official, you know, so he, he officiated little league games. He officiated high school games. He officiated, college games and, you know, mostly football, but he did uh, college football, but everything else was high school. He did all other sports and even little league, he did all other sports. So just being able to ride with him and go watch the games and, you know, between games, if we, if it was a basketball game, he and I would shoot. If it was a baseball game, he and I would play catch. 
If it was a football game, he and I would play catch, you know, so just being around sports all the time because of him and, you know, friends in the neighborhood, that that's really how I got my start. Yeah. And, and you went on to play college football at the university of Tennessee and uh, was it the 98 national championship team you were on? Yes, sir. It was. Okay. So tell me how, what the moment was that like to be a part of a national championship team and uh, to play for uh, Phil Fulmer? You know that, and it was, it's, it's still such a hard experience to describe because when you're in the midst of it, you don't really get it. Um, it's not until, you know, like most people, when you get older, you're able to reflect and like, wow, this, that's who that was. And this is what you're doing. But, you know, my freshman year in 1997 was Peyton Manning's senior year. And so I remember, you know, just walking on that campus and we would always work out. Everything was always about helping Peyton to really see me in his legacy by one beating Florida, two winning the SEC title, but three just winning the national championship. Because at that time, the Florida-Tennessee rivalry was very big in the SEC Eastern Division. But historically, the Tennessee-Alabama rivalry dates back to the 1940s and 50s. You're talking the third Saturday in October. Winner gets a cigar in the locker room. All the tradition. But it was always about helping Peyton to do all of these things because you wanted to send him out on top. And so that was one of the first times that I really started to learn about what it meant to play for your teammates and play for your brothers and look at look to the upper class and for senior leadership. But yeah, I had a chance to play with Peyton. And, you know, after that, there were so many other great players that I was able to play with. And, my, you know, you talk about the 1998 ch championship team of 11 starters on offense, 11 starters on defense, and even your special teams players. I want to say it was almost 20 of the 22 starters on both sides of defense end up playing professional football. And so when you're surrounded by those kind of players on a day in and day out, you know, you're just, you naturally acclimate and come to their level of work. And so, it, and you don't think about it. It just becomes natural because that's what they're doing. And you want to be like them. You want to, you're competing against them to play. And so, you know, in order to beat these guys out, you have to outwork them or find something just to keep up. You can't slack. You can't be lazy. You can't be a, a defiant player. You have to be on, on your P's and Q's each and every day you come to that facility. But it helped, it helped me in so many ways that, like, I can say that I'm here a lot because of that time there as a player during those, during those years. Well, and, and that kind of leads to the next question, or it does lead to the next question. Uh, when you think about people that have helped hold the ladder for you to climb to great success, who are those people? I mean, you've mentioned your dad, right? But, uh, yeah. and your grandparents. Yeah. Uh, who, who are some people that held the ladder for you through the years? You know, I go back to my brother and my sister again, because, um, you know, like I said, I lost my mother when I was 10 years old. And so when my mother passed, my sister had just graduated from Howard University, and I'll never forget it. She was just about to start a job at Pepsi Cola in Pennsylvania, and she she literally turned in her resignation to help come back and raise me because 
one that was one of my mother's final wishes but she knew that she knew how hard it was going to be for me to not have my mother around like i was the youngest of three kids and wherever my mother went i went you know where i was like i said my father was an official but my my mother introduced me to bowling and so to watch my mother bowl was an impressive feat to me i, I remember going to the bowling alley with her on wednesday nights for her league games and just watching the competitive juices in her her getting on her teammates because it was nobody liked losing and I didn't get it, but I, as you get older, you understand what competition means. And so, you know, my sister held the ladder for me just from helping helping me to stay the course. Um, my brother, who, as I said, he, he was a wrestler in high school. And so he always used to tell me, you know, you have to find what's best for you. He didn't try to, he was, he's probably one of, of the three siblings. We won't ever tell him. He is the best athlete of us all. But he decided to wrestle. That was all he wanted to do, not play baseball, not play basketball. He only wanted to wrestle. And, you know, he never, never batted an eye about it, never decided to try and do anything else. He just wanted to wrestle. And so, you know, he held the ladder for me. But then one of my assistants now, and it's, it's a humbling experience to be able to call him assistant because he was my mentor and my college strength coach, Roderick Moore. I originally walked on at the University of Tennessee, and as I'm walking on, he he helped me out. And, you know, he would stay on me. He would keep me encouraged, and, you know, I eventually earned my scholarship. But he was the one who understood what it meant to have to work on this le on that level, but also saw it in me that, you know, scholarship or not, if you work hard enough and if you do what you're supposed to do, the coaches will recognize that you have a skill set, you have the ability. Recruiting is what, it, what it, is what it is. You know, there's a lot of politics behind it, but typically team, the coaches are going to play their hardest work in most dependable place. And so that's all he kept preaching to me. And so at that point, you know, he that was as my college strength coach, but then when I was a GA, he would always pour into me because there was a point when I was in grad school, I actually wanted to go to law school to become a sports agent. And say, you know, he would talk to me like, you know, you're good at training. Why don't you think about being a strength coach? I'm like, ah, oh, you know, man, whatever. No, nah, not, re not really. But he would just kind of keep having that talk with me each and every day. And lo and behold, as I'm finishing grad school, having just taken my LSAT, getting ready to try to get into law school at UT, the South, he recommended me for the South Carolina State job. And so I go interview and he, you know, he helps prep me for my interview and I get the job. And so literally that, that road started all because of him. Wow. Well, uh, so, so man, that's amazing. So he's your assistant with the, the Falcons now is what yeah. you're saying. Wow. Talk about, that's amazing. I'm sure that when you had that opportunity to, to possibly bring in staff members, you, was that, he's the first person you thought of? Yes, Absolutely. That's cool. That's really, really neat. Thanks for sharing that. Oh yeah. No, I mean, I now, it, it was, it was, it was really one of those things. I tell him all the time that I'm on, I am here because of you. And there was no way I was going to come or take any, any job like this without having you here with me and for you to be able to share in this with me. Wow. That's really cool. You know, and I've said this on a, a, several of the podcasts, but 
uh, we really do, all of us, stand on the shoulders of giants. Uh, when we get to this place, you know, people have really, the folks that have hold, held the ladder for us, the people that have pushed us, challenged us uh, to get to the very best place we can get to, uh, it, you know, it, I'm glad that uh, you've got that opportunity. Well, I would love to have that chance to be able to bring someone that mentored me in to uh, work with me. That'd be just amazing. Um, now, next question, you know, you have this new job with the Falcons. You got that, that dream job, you know, you're a, a head strength coach in the NFL. What's, what are some of the biggest challenges that you face day to day in your job so far? Uh, the first thing actually is, is a, is a, it's a joke, but it's a very serious issue. You talk about the age range of players. And I say that because, you know, when I was in New York, I had a chance to work with Eli Manning on the backside of his career. And, you know, you're talking, Eli is two years younger than me. Of course, I had a chance to play with his brother. So we would always laugh and joke about the Ole Miss and the Tennessee and how he should have came to Tennessee and we could have kept winning. But going back to the question, you you see the these older players and then conversely, you have these rookies coming in. And so when you're talking about this wide age range, you can't train each one of them the same. You have to really sit down, know their injury history, know their, you know, their training history, know their training backgrounds so that you can make the program best suited and tailored for them. So that's why it's important for me to have two good assistants. My other assistant is Bobby Thomas along with Rod Moore. But you have to be able to navigate these age ranges because if you try to force hypothetically Eli Manning to do what Daniel Jones is doing, you can get Eli hurt. Conversely, if you try to train Daniel like you're training Eli, then Daniel doesn't get the development that he needs being on the front end of his, of his career. Yeah. So it's knowing each and every year Okay, yeah, I've got a new we got a new rookie class coming in. Well, let's look at how these rookies are. Let's let's find out because even though they're rookies, you know, you'll still get a junior. You can get a you know a third year player, a fourth year, fifth year player. You can get some Mormons like you know students from BYU who go do their 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 Mormon missions and then go back to college. So even though they're rookies, they might be in their mid twenties. That that is a you know they're not just a typical rookie, so you have to take that into consideration. And so even just within a per, a player's age, where are they at within their career, you know, because you have some guys who can be 10, 12 years special team players. So even though they're old, because the special teams in the NFL, you might play 10 to 15 plays a game, you don't have a lot of mileage on your body, so you can still. Now, you know, be a little bit more aggressive with their training. Conversely, if you've got uh, an offensive or a defensive lineman, which are steady state collision and impact positions, a younger guy, you know, you still have to be more careful with that older guy compared to the younger guy. So you just always have to be mindful of the age and the the career timeline of these players. Yeah. Um, and so a second, a second thing is the outside influence of these players. Again, right now we're dealing with the uh, um, labor dispute between the NFLPA and NFL owners about a volunteer offseason. So 
you've got some players that are not training with their team. No problem. But when you don't have players in the building, you can't, because of collective bargaining agreement, you can't ask them or talk to them about their training. You don't know if they're doing their training, if it's a college strength coach, what their personal trainer is doing, or if they're just following something that they see on social media. You know, because every, every social media guru is going to try to create some exercise that's going to make them look different from somebody else. And if someone tries that not knowing why to do it, how to do it, or in a supervised setting, of course you can get hurt. And so when you're dealing with all these different people and different influences, there comes a point where you have to be able to understand you're in a relationship with this player now. In college, you're on top of these players. As professionals, you're on the same page. So you have to have dialogue and not just monologue. You have to be able to accept that they're working with someone else and not be offended by it because it is voluntary, but it's also their livelihood. So whatever, however they want to train and prepare is up to them. So you have to be able to listen to them, have conversations to educate them, but then also humble yourself enough to listen to them and be and learn from them about what they're doing, how they go about their training and their thoughts on training. Wow. Good, good. Uh, interesting challenges. Those are things I, of course, we, we haven't heard in many of our uh, interviews so far in podcasts. So when you look at, I mean, you've been around sports for a long, long time. You were an athlete in college, high school and college course, and then have got been in this business for quite a while. But when you think about skills that are essential for success in this industry, you know, in strength and conditioning and ticket sales, in marketing, in administration, in anything, what are skills that you consider to be essential for success as a sports professional? The first one I would say are, is people skills. And when I say people skills, I, I, I will say communication, empathy, and common sense. And the reason I say communication is that you can never assume that a person knows anything. You have to be able to communicate to them that what your point so that they understand and grasp it and they understand just because I tell you how to do an exercise doesn't mean that you'll know how to do it I have to come up with a cue so that you can process it retain it and be able to perform it the right way or you'll get hurt conversely you know with the from my psychology background what we know is that there are two types of stress that the body responds to. You stress, which is good stress, distress, which is bad stress. When you're dealing with these athletes, they are still human. And so there comes a, a point where if a college student is going through something at home, maybe he's under pressure from his grades and his academic course load, or when you're dealing with professional athletes, whether they're dealing with situations at home, financial issues, you know, whatever it may be, you still have to be empathetic that these are people that you're dealing with. They're not robots. They, they have feelings. They have, you know, there's a heart beating in there. There's not just machines that once you turn on the button that they go and they can keep going. No, there's going to be some things that, that require you to be able to navigate and help them balance, but also understand that you're, for us as strength coaches, the workout that day might not be the most important thing. So being able to be empathetic and letting them 
have their moments to themselves to deal with whatever issues are going on and understand that our our job will come back around, but it's second nature to, to their livelihood and to their personal lives. But then the common sense approach of just understanding that just because it's in a book doesn't mean it's always right or that it can always fit. You have to trust your coach and I, trust the situation and know that everything that you might've been taught in a class for a certification or you see on TV, on the internet might not really be true. So you have to just practice common sense. So those are the things I consider people skills. Another thing is the flexibility. As I was mentioning earlier, when these players have these outside influences, because now as professional athletes, the game is 90% mental, 10% physical. Tiger Woods said that. And if there is something that an athlete loves to do that they feel is important to their overall performance, even if it's against my personal or professional beliefs, I need to find a way to make sure that that player is able to get that. So they don't feel that they are losing something that's going to make the best, make them the best athlete possible. Again, as professional athletes, this is their livelihood. So if, if they feel that there is one thing that's thrown off or something that has been taken from them that they've always depended on, that could cost that, you know, this is a big business. They make a lot of money. This is not, that's not something worth costing them a lot of money. Uh, something else is humility. Again, even though I have the title of quote unquote head strength and conditioning coach, I, re I report to position coaches, coordinators, head coaches, general manager, and a team owner. Every, all of those individuals can easily come down here and tell me, I don't want them to do that. I don't want them to do this. I don't. And all I can do is say, yes, sir, no problem. We'll find a way to make it work. So there's that flexibility, but then there's that humility that, okay, I know I have a title, but that title is just for paper. That means nothing in the grand scheme of this organization. And then the last thing is just the hunger because you will get fired in this business. You know, there's a coaching cliche. There are two types of coaches, those that have been fired and those that will be fired, but you will be fired. And so once you get fired, is it just the end of the world for you where you feel wrong and you have a pity party? Or do you take it for what it's worth, you learn, you accept it, and you try to go get the next job? Because it will happen for sure. Wow. Very, very good. Uh, interesting points, too. And I, I do think I think one of the big things when we when you look at this industry is is that flexibility piece but you brought up the very first one and it's the people skills part and ha having the ability to communicate and being able to be uh, concise and get to the point and be able to communicate in a well in a way that develops trust and you have to be able to develop trust or whatever coaching you do isn't is going to fall flat you know if, if uh, you kind of talked about that a little bit pertaining to getting to know the people that you work with, the players that you work with, and but not to mention just the players, the people that are the position coaches and folks in the front office. And my gosh, you, you, you said Arthur Blank interviewed you, right? <laughs> I mean, did he not? I mean, he's the owner, right? So, yeah. So, so I mean, you know, you have to get to know all these people. Um, and it kind of leads to the next question. 
you know, you've, you've moved a lot and been around and you've met a lot of people. When you think about networking, how important is it? And how do you approach networking? Well, I think it's, when you talk about networking in sports, networking is truly the lifeline of sports. You know, because you don't know where your next opportunity will come from. And I say that because in college, if, you know, public institutions are, you know, legally mandated to post a job announcement whenever some, whenever a position is available, but it's not like your typical corporate job where, okay, there's a job listing, you can go apply for it, and then maybe you make it through the process of net resumes and all that. No. If you see a job in sports posted, that's already after the fact. They already know who they want to hire for that position. So knowing people that are basically knowing that someone is going to be looking for you they are looking for looking to fill a position during any point of a transition is how people get jobs in sports. And so, you know, one thing that now I'm going almost 20 years in this profession, I tell young, young strength coaches that there's a difference between networking to learn and networking for jobs. I have relationships with coaches that I literally would just talk to about strength conditioning stuff. When we talk, we call it talking shop. But then there are other coaches that I talk to because they know such and such person or they know this person at this organization. And so I can always count on them to know what kind of movement is going on within our profession. So you have to be able to distinguish the two because you can easily get them intertwined, but then also keep them separate and make sure that you're maximizing your network value. And then lastly, to that point, it's we look at it in a, tri in, in a triangle. And I say that because there's what you know, there's who you know, but then there's who knows you. And the reason that all three of those are important because what you know will keep you in the door. Who you know gets you in the door, but who, you, but who knows you opens the door for you. So... Again, with my situation here, Coach Arthur Smith and Coach Joe Judge had a relationship. Well, one of my best friends, Deshae Townsend, who played at Alabama, we coached together at Mississippi State. Our daughters were on the same gymnastics team. Our sons love baseball. We're, our families are just that close. Arthur and Deshae worked together in Tennessee. So Arthur could call Deshae about me. When in professional sports, Again, talking about that player-coach relationship, there were players that had been in Tennessee that were New York, but there were also players from New York that had been in Tennessee. And then there were players that I had coached in college that Coach Smith had worked with. And so he spoke with all of them. So again, it's who knows you, who you know, but what you know. And so all of those people, all of those people helped paint this picture of who Thomas Stallworth is before he even gets to talk to me personally. Wow, I love that. That's great. Um, I really, the, the triangle approach, I do appreciate that. That's a first. I've never really heard that before. And uh, it certainly hasn't been in any of our interviews. So thank you for sharing that. No problem. Um, what's one piece of advice? I have some a couple more questions. 
uh, after this, but uh, what is one piece of advice you'd give to someone deciding to start a career in sports? Going back to those skills that I consider to be essential, humility plus flexibility. And what I mean by that, as you're coming from grad school, undergrad or whatever, and you're trying to get in, be willing to take any job to get your first career opportunity. It might not be the perfect opportunity, but it's an opportunity. Then you can make that your mark. You can put your stamp on that and start to create your name. But if you're waiting for the quote-unquote destination job, the big logo job, the attractive job, you can be missing out on opportunities while the next person is getting opportunities and building a name for themselves. So don't think about it like it's a last stop, but look at it for what it is, the opportunity to get your career started. Great advice. Um, this, uh, this is a question that's related to, you know, as I mentioned at the beginning, you earned your doctor of psychology degree at the University of Arizona Global Campus this past this year. And um, tell me a little bit about how that's impacted your uh, current job and, and also what your future holds for that. That's a great question. And so one with my current job, I was fortunate to be distinguished as their 32 head NFL strength coaches. Once I got hired, I was one of three in the NFL with a doctoral degree. Um, you know, you always talk me, talk to me and preach to me about the importance of it, but how how rare it is in American society to be in that 4% of, of people with their doctoral degree. But now when you say that to be one of 32 head strength coaches is one thing, but now to be one of three is even more, you know, more rare. So that being able to be attractive to people in an organization that, okay, not only is he qualified from an experience standpoint, he's qualified from an academic and a research standpoint. Um, but again, to, to the second part of your question, strength coaches don't retire. <laughs> um, I was told that when I was a young strength coach. And so there comes a point where the phone will stop ringing because they'll want a younger guy, which I get because it does take a lot of energy to get people motivated to do something that they do not naturally want to do. I would still like to transition into some developmental role where I can still work with players outside of their sport, you know, whether it's player development, become an LPC so I could be a practicing sports psychologist, or whatever it may be. But, you know, just want to still stay around sports because, as I said, when you go grow up, five, six years old, to now being 42, being sports, always being a major part of your life. I can't imagine a life without sports. Yeah. Well, I found that as I've, as I've uh, turned the 50 uh, year old mark last year, I'll be 51 in July and how now it's become more of, um, and I can still get out on the court and, and coach with the, with the same energy. But I also think that it's now become some, somewhat of a, uh, I'm the advisor now for a lot of folks, whether that was for you and your doctoral program and, and chairing you, uh, which was awesome. You did a great job on your dissertation and, and uh, lots of distinction there. But now 
it's gotten to that place where I I look at my role as as a mentor role and and it kind of leads to the next and final question how do you hold the ladder for others in your role um and i think you just hit the nail on the head it's to now be a mentor um you talk about 20 years in any profession you know that's a long time that's really like a generation and so there are a lot of things that you learn that you see that you know, continue to make you better, but when you reflect back on them, you get you great you gain a greater appreciation for what it is that you've gone through, the people that you've met, and the things that you've learned. So the first thing is just being a mentor, you know, and being available to take time to talk to people. You know, I, I remember being a young strength coach, and you go to these conferences, and you reach out to coaches because you want to learn, you want to talk to them. And as head guys, they would just pass you off to an assistant. Well, no disrespect to that assistant. I want to know what it was like for you to get to your position. If I'm an assistant, I already know what being an assistant is. I want to be in your shoes. So I want to know what that's about. And so I want to, if people have questions and want to talk to a head guy, then I want to be able to make myself available and have those conversations. Um, and if they want to talk to anybody else on my staff, that's different. But if you want to talk to a head person, you you say that, then I feel obligated to do that for you. Um, secondly, I would say to tell people the truth. And I say that because, you know, there's, there's the microwave generation that, you know, <laughs> old people talk about and thinking that jobs are easy to come by. No, it's far from the truth. To, be, to get to where I've gotten to was not easy at all um and i can say that it was realistically never on my on my plan never on my radar however i'm here so just knowing that everybody's story is going to be different everybody's roles will be different but in the process accepting your truth for what it is if you're not good at this accept that embrace that work on it or if you know that you're not, that's not something you want to work on, find your strength and pursue that to make that your differentiating factor. So you have to be truthful and tell people that. But then lastly, just helping connect, uh, helping connect others. Um, I'm, an, I'm a member of Omega Sci-Fi Fraternity Incorporated. And there's a poem called Bridge Builder by William A. Dromgoul. That was one, a very important poem that I had to learn when we were um, becoming members. And I still think about that. And basically it just talks about, I'm going across this bridge and I need to help build this bridge for somebody that's gonna be following me. And so if there's somebody that I can help connect then, so be it. I wanna help them connect each other. And at that point it's on those individuals to make their connection grow stronger. Wow, that that's great. That it, it's similar to a ladder holder type concept in some ways. Um, wow. Well, uh, Thomas, thank you so much for taking time out of your very busy day uh, with the Atlanta Falcons uh, to to go to be part of this podcast. Um, how would you like to close the uh, podcast today? You know, I just want to tell you thank you because you are the one who helped me finish that degree you know you coached me hard you held me accountable 
And I think that's what some people need to remember that everybody needs someone. You know, the title of your, your podcast, Holding the Ladder, you know, it's not just holding the ladder, but it's holding the rope because as you were holding me accountable, I didn't want to let you down. So I was holding the rope because if I let go of that rope, I was going to let you down and I didn't want to let you down or let the other people that were holding the ladder and holding the rope for me down. So just remember that this is a journey that is meant to be with someone and not by yourself. Great advice. Absolutely. And thank you for the kind words. And, and, you know, the one thing that I've, I, I was very, obviously very tough on you, but I, I also think that when you're in a coaching position, I believe it's our responsibility to hold people accountable, not because we want to be jerks, but because we want to see folks get to the place where their potential should bring them to. And, uh, and, and I, and, and obviously you're going to do that in Atlanta and I'm so happy for you and proud uh, that you've gotten your, you've gotten your job, you've gotten your dream job. And that, that's just really, really cool. I, I know uh, when I saw that you got the position, uh, you know, it, it, it's one of those things I think, and this is possibly a good way to close, but when you're in a mentoring role, uh, no matter how big or small, it's always cool to be able to see someone that you've worked with, even in a small way, get to the place where they reach their dream. So I really am proud of you and um, just want to congratulate you again. I know you got a lot of work to, uh, to do there with the new staff and everything, but you're part of that. And um, I just want to thank you again for being, uh, you know, willing to come on the podcast. No problem. Thank you for having me again, Dr. Rice. I'm very humble. Yeah, no, uh, me too. Thank you. And all right, everyone. Uh, thank you once again for listening to this week's episode. Uh, we look forward to seeing you this next Monday. Have a great week. Thanks for listening. And until next week, I challenge you to hold a ladder for someone to climb to greater heights than they ever thought possible.